Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back to the Almost Sideways podcast, everyone. Thank you so much for listening once again. Uh, I am your host, Terry Plucknett, and joining me uh, are my co-hosts, Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Zach, the last time I talked to you, we were on Adam Daly Live. Uh, give me your thoughts on how that went. Oh, it was amazing. Um, for all you fans out there that, that watched us on Adam Daly Live, it was... Uh, it was a spectacular event. We talked about many things, including Ben's thoughts on John Wick Chapter 2 and, you know, Terry's thoughts about um, boyhood and a variety of topics. It, it, it was a blast. And the Disney streaming service. Yeah, it, it was a lot of fun, I will say. It, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a little different having the video side to it. I'm used to just having the audio. I had to actually think about how I looked for that one. It's a little scary As, now because it's it's out there, you know. It, it, it like, is it is out there. I, I'm surprised you remember any of it, honestly. Oh, I, I don't. <laughs> I, I I rewatched it. That's what I'm going off. Of. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and one more question for you before uh, before we move on. What are your thoughts on Les Miles possibly being a Jayhawk football coach? Oh yeah, I, I'm so excited for that. You know, um, I I can't wait to have like a, a competent um, football coach for once. Uh, you know, someone who's not going to make bonehead calls on fourth down, and you know, not go for game-winning field goals and let the clock run out. I I'm really excited for that. Oh, but but you guys don't you guys don't have real grass though, right? That's gonna be a problem. Won't have anything to eat. Right. <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking about, Todd. You lost me. The less mild, he like he's always like you know the grass at Tiger Stadium tastes better than any other grass you know. You guys have field turf, don't you? Uh, I wouldn't know. I haven't been to that stadium in quite a while. I mean, th- this is Kansas, so people most people don't realize we have a football team, but now they will. Um, Todd, we uh we just uh, finished watching. Uh, by the way, we are recording on Saturday afternoon here. We just finished watching an intense nine to six Husker win over the Michigan State Spartans. What are your thoughts? Uh, it was a beautiful football game and a win that I wasn't really sure that that style of team could actually pull off. But uh, that shows that they can actually compete in the Big Ten. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was. It was getting sloppy there at the end with all the snow and and such, but it was a it was a good win. It was a good one to pull out. Um, also, I wanted to ask you uh, our first uh, awards season uh, kind of precursor awards nominations came out uh, this last week, and it was the Independent Spirit Awards. Uh, just give me a quick a uh, few initial thoughts on uh, on what you think of those nominations. Uh. Well, there weren't are not a ton of the big Oscar contenders that really uh, qualify for the Spirit Awards, uh, but the ones that do actually had pretty strong showings, like If Beale Street Could Talk in eighth grade, and First Reformed, I guess if you want to consider that a contender, it definitely got a lot of love from the Spirit Awards. But I don't know, I, I'm I don't the Spirit Awards recently have been kind of watered down because a lot of these movies are hardly independent, like Black Klansman. And uh, 
and Hereditary and, and stuff like that. I don't really consider those independent movies, but I don't know. I I guess if it's an independent studio, then it qualifies no matter what the budget was, which is kind of dumb. Yeah, they do have some qualifiers on what makes an independent movie, but yeah, there's some that are definitely looking like uh, like some bigger uh, bigger box office movies than uh, than the Independent Spirit Awards usually uh, honor. All I care about is that uh, hopefully at this year's broadcast they have a 10-year anniversary uh, selection of uh, the greatest acceptance speech of all time, which was Mickey Rourke at the 2008 uh, Spirit Awards. Um, we need to commemorate that as, as often as we can. That, uh, clearly the greatest moment in Spirit Awards history. Gosh, was that 10 years ago? Man. <laughs> shout, out, shout out to Loki Eric and, and Eric Roberts. <laughs> and the San Bernardino Police Department. <laughs> uh, well once again thank you so much uh, for listening uh, as I say every time if you have not done so please rate review and subscribe to us on iTunes so we can be uh, seen by more people on there and uh, heard by more listeners uh, find us on at almostsideways.com our thousands of reviews we have there uh, find us uh, on Facebook find us on Twitter um uh, Let's hop into what we're doing today by uh, first talking about what we are drinking. Uh, Zach, what are you drinking today? Oh, I, I gotta be lame here. Um, I'm drinking, unfortunately, uh, Agua Fria. Um, Agua Fria. I, I'm in the middle of a commitment today that uh, I need to be uh, alert during, sadly. And it doesn't, uh. it's not this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> So cheers. I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't expect it. I wouldn't expect it. <laughs> Todd, what do you got today? Uh, I have the Budweiser Copper Lager, uh, which was distilled or brewed in Jim Beam uh, whiskey barrels, which has like a good hint of whiskey along with the the Budweiser flavor. It doesn't really taste like Budweiser that much. And yeah, so that's what I'm sipping on. Plus this uh, Washington. Uh, apple cider 5.5% alcohol thing that was given to me when I stole it from my father that's a quote from Pointless <laughs> World by the way <laughs> that seems more like a Terry drink though yeah well it's not mine I don't actually have any booze so that's why so I had to go get some <laughs> in desperate uh, times yes. yeah well for me this time I have um Something that's a little different than I normally have. This is uh, Worthy Brewing Company out of Bend, Oregon. It is their Lights Out Vanilla Cream Extra Stout. Uh, it's pretty good. Really smooth. 7.7 ABV. Uh, so it's got a kick in there. But yeah, th- this one's going down nice and smooth. Cheers. Mm-hmm. Well, let's hop into uh, our movie review for this podcast. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zack movie ever made. You gotta see it. Movie reviews. And today we're looking at a movie that we were all fairly excited for because um, it's from a director that kind of becomes an event uh, whenever one of uh, one of their movies comes out, and that's the Coen Brothers. Uh, they haven't come out with many movies recently, and their most recent one came out this weekend on Netflix, and it is called The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. 
And, uh, like I said, they haven't come out with many movies recently. This is their first movie since, uh, since Hail Caesar, um, which I think was their first movie. Oh, I had this up before this that was their first movie since inside lewin davis and before that true grit so they have really slowed down their uh, their filmmaking recently but the ballad of buster scruggs is definitely one of their more quirky films it is a uh, a six-part uh kind of episodic film uh about the the wild west and some different stories from there you have everything from uh from tim blake nelson who is the uh the singing outlaw buster scruggs to uh, to Liam Neeson, who is um, who is uh, finding whatever he can as a side freak show to make some money as he uh, travels around uh, to different towns, to James Franco, who's a bank robber trying to figure out how to not be hanged for his crimes, uh, to uh, to Tom Waits, who's a prospector trying to trying to find a uh, oh what was he called Mr. Pocket. Mr. Pocket, where all the all the gold was, and all the way to uh, to Brendan Gleeson, who is uh, who is um, a bounty hunter, a la uh, Christoph Waltz in Django Unchained. Uh, it, it's a it's an interesting movie. Uh, it's kind of hard to look at it uh, as a whole without talking about each of the individual parts. Some of the parts were very good. I thought um, I thought the the Buster Scruggs section was just like vintage Coen brothers of quirky and weird and amazing. Uh, I thought the same thing about the, uh, the section called the gal who got rattled, uh, with Zoe Kazan as a, as a single female on the, on the Oregon trail, working her way to the West. Um, however, some of them I thought fell pretty flat. The, the closing one, uh, with Brendan Gleeson, the mortal remains I thought was pretty, was pretty weak. Um, the uh, the prospector one was was kind of boring as well. It so it it was hit or miss depending on which ones you were looking at. Uh, overall, I'm giving it two and a half stars. Uh, it, it's great to see the Coen brothers making another movie. Uh, and if this is what it has to be for us to see them make have a movie, then I'm glad I we got it. But I wish they would start making more movies again. Back. Uh, about 10 years ago, they were making like a film or two a year, and they were amazing, and they were great. And I want to get back to that Coen Brothers era, but uh, for right now, I'll uh, I'll settle for The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Zach, what do you think? Well, uh, before this podcast, Todd and I were talking about which of the episodes we thought you'd like the best, and I have to confess, Todd, Todd won. Todd, Todd thought you'd really like the uh, the first one, The Ballad of Busker Scruggs, uh, the best. I thought you'd like the last one because of the uh, uh, that, that fur trapper character who was really funny and had like these really offbeat lines and had a big bushy beard, but y- you didn't like him? It was it was okay. I I think that was uh, I think it was it would have been better if it had been not the closer. Like I think I think after what happened in the gal who got rattled, which was right before it, to have that followed up by this kind of slow plotting, just five people in a stagecoach having a conversation. Uh, even if they were the quirky characters, I thought was was uh, ill-advised. All right. Well, so 
I, I really love the idea of an anthology film. I, I, I wish more filmmakers uh, would do it, you know, like New York Stories, that Scorsese, Woody Allen, and uh, Francis Coppola production in the 1980s is, is really awesome, even if either, if not all the films are great in it. Um, you know, Wild Tales was that Argentinian film from a couple of years ago that was kind of like this. It was, I think, like five or six short films. Um, they're really awesome uh, because, you know what, If uh, we're, we're a generation that now has a short attention span, so if you get really bored with a movie... Um, you know what, just hold out another 20 minutes and you never have to deal with it again. Um, so I was pleased to see the Coens kind of venture into this territory. Um, I would have to say, though, I'd have to agree with Terry that some of these episodes were, were hit and miss. Um, I'm going to start out with the ones that, that didn't work so well, and then we'll go to the, the, the one that I thought was, was exceptional. Um, the film opens with this uh, kind of strange Gene Autry uh, singing cowboy played by uh, Tim Blake Nelson, and I don't know, the, it, it's a very Ethan film. Okay, so that's another thing, is that, you know, Todd and I have had this long conversation about what are Ethan films, what are, what are Joel films, okay? And the Ballad of Busker Stars, that opens that opening film is such an Ethan film. I mean, the, the dark, grotesque humor of it, very, very Ethan. Whereas, like, Meal Ticket, the one with Liam Neeson, and, and uh, the guy that's this kind of sideshow performer, total Joel film, okay? Like, dark, atmospheric, brooding, and, and, uh, and very, like, uh, cinematically, you know, um, uh, masterful and things like that. Anyway, uh, long story short, most of them are hit or miss. If you got bored with them, you know, you kind of move on. Some of them actually were kind of boring. I would agree with you, Terry. The Gold Prospector one was, you know, a, a little bit redundant. However, the one great film in this anthology is The Gal Who Got Rattled uh, with Zoe Kazan. That was really, really, really well done. And I wish that that short film had developed and blossomed into something bigger. Because you see the seeds of this really interesting character played by Zoe Kazan, who gets herself in this situation where she has to, you know, she's traveling out west and uh, on this brigade in, her, in this, in this uh, stagecoach and this caravan and uh, her brother dies and these sort of things start popping up that are really unexpected. It goes in really unpredictable ways and without spoiling it, you see why it has to end at a certain point, but I, I kind of wished that the movie had gone on. I was really fascinated with Zoe Kazan's character in it. I thought she gave the best performance and I thought it was clearly the best film of the anthology. So, in the end, hit or miss for the most part, uh, but the one that really sticks out is The Gal Who Got Rattled. So, I guess he, I would have to agree, you have, you give it. I have to give it two and a half stars, even though it's not really fair because it oscillates between being better or worse than that, depending on the short film. But but uh, the gal got that got rattled, or who got rattled, should have been developed into a feature length film. That that was a one part that felt like classic Coen Brothers. Yeah, agree. Like, like it, it was, it had the quirkiness, but it had the darkness to it. It 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 felt there were the quirky characters that came through from the dinner scene to the some of the stuff that happened on the stagecoach. Uh, to the dog, even that, yeah, that oh, one the dog felt, was great. President felt Fra- like Fra- classic. President cult. President Franklin Pierce. President Pierce, and, <laughs> that's a high price. And, and like Zoe Kazan, it's such, exactly. It's a, great, it's a great performance. Like her reaction, she gets like a surprise marriage proposal. I mean, that was a great, great moment in the movie. Her facial reaction was just totally unexpected, and she's awesome. She's one of the best actresses working today. So she stands out. That short film stands out in an otherwise, eh, you know, so-so collection. Todd, what do you think? Uh, I'm, for the most part, on the same page as you guys. Uh, I thought it was definitely up and down, but I do kind of like anthology movies, too. There's one that I sticks out that I really like called uh, Stories of Lost Souls that came out, like, 15 years ago, maybe. And, like, I, I really like, uh, especially when they, they don't actually connect with each other, it 
it makes it yeah a much more interesting uh, experience watching it because it's not one whole thing you're watching. It's like you're watching a bunch of mini movies. But uh, I thought so. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the first one, I thought was I thought it was fun and it was it was bizarre. I didn't really know where the movie was gonna go after that. Uh, I thought like his kills were like as creative as anything in John Wick or anything like that. And I don't know, Tim Blake Nelson is just a great Coen Brothers actor. I, I thought that one was pretty good. Then you go to Near Algodonis, the bank robber played by James Franco with the crazy-eyed bank teller of Steven Root. I thought that one was kind of ridiculous, and I didn't really like it. Then Meal Ticket, I almost fell asleep during. Uh, then I got to All, All Gold Canyon uh, about the gold prospector, which I thought was actually the best one in the entire in the entire movie. Uh, like, Tom Waits, it's a shame that he's never been in a Coen Brothers movie, because he absolutely lived in that role. It starts out as, like, almost, there'll be blood, but searching for gold instead of oil. And, I don't know, in true comedy fashion, like, the characters in these movies, or in this movie, is, are the some of the dumbest characters uh, that you'll ever see. Uh, com- like, comedy westerns, like, the characters are always really dumb, but this, like, especially in All Gold Canyon, it definitely exemplifies that. And it's actually the second movie this year I've liked about a gold prospector because the Sisters Brothers is also really good. Uh, and, yeah, I I really like the gold, the gold, All Gold Canyon as well as the girl, the gal who got rattled, as we said. That was that was uh, definitely classic Coen Brothers. And The Mortal Remains felt like a Tarantino movie. I don't really think it worked all that well. It, w- it was pretty decent. It ended kind of strange, but... I don't know. Overall, I thought the movie, uh, the photography was outstanding. Carter Burwell's score was great and versatile, and it, all of them had something to draw you in. But overall, I'm I'm still giving it around a three star rating because I I did overall enjoy watching it more than I didn't. Um, something that uh that you mentioned, I you mentioned Tarantino in there, and I felt um. This was, like, the most violent I've ever seen a Coen Brothers movie, and the violence almost felt overdone in a way Tarantino does it, uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, a couple things, other things that I was, uh, remembering as you guys were talking about it. One, I don't think Tim Blake Nelson ages. Like, this looks like it could have been shot the day after Oh Brother Where Art Thou Wrapped because he looks exactly the same as he did in that movie. Um, speaking of O Brother Where Art Thou, I'm pretty sure Steven Root is just playing the same character he played in O Brother Where Art Thou as the bank teller, because it's pretty much the exact same guy, except this one can see where in O Brother Where Art Thou he was blind. Um, and uh, and I, I like your comparison of the, the mortal remains uh, kind of being a Tarantino-esque um picture because it's just yeah it's just the five of them having this quirky conversation in a way that uh that almost like a tarantino wannabe would write a scene so and bounty yeah. hunters yeah and well, and, it's, and it's Django. yeah <laughs> well no it's the it's the hateful eight it's the first 30 minutes of the hateful oh, eight yeah that, that's that true holds. the reason why i can't quite be as enthusiastic as todd is is because i feel like some of these ideas are sort of half-baked like it's as though um joel and ethan maybe thought about developing them into something greater but then just sort of gave up on them um like 
you know, um, the James Franco, I mean, it's like, it's an idea and it's sort of funny as a concept, but it doesn't really, it's not really a story. And I think it's clear that they didn't have much to go off of. And so, you know, just putting in this short, the short form doesn't automatically make it somehow more cinematic or more appealing in a way. It's just sort of a funny conceit. And the last line is funny too, but it's it's not really anything more than just uh, sort of pastiche. And um, with the exception of the gal who got rattled, the rest of them all just kind of seem ephemeral. And I don't know, I don't think I'll be thinking about them in the next few weeks or months. Yeah, I feel like it's almost like they had like an image in their head and then they wrote a story around it like with with the the bank robber one it's like they had the idea of like well what if someone was had their neck tied to a tree but they were sitting on their horse like what could you do with that and they like wrote a story about how he got there or something like that you know because i feel like that was like a like a major that was like a five minute segment of that like 12 minute movie you know Mm -hmm. it almost feels like the coens are like bored with making movies I mean, it's the first movie they've made in, what, four years? And it's a six-part anthology of, like, half-thought-out concepts that they throw into a movie. One thing that I thought was really interesting is it's a two-hour movie of six parts. The first four parts take the first hour, and the last two parts take the last hour. Um, Like like I said, I I enjoyed the Buster Scruggs one because it was was quirky. It was fun. It was ten minutes long. It's like, well, why you know, flesh out some of these thoughts a little more. I mean, it, it's kind of ridiculous how, how quick the first hour went through these four parts. And then obviously you needed the time for the guy who got rattled, but then mortal remains just dragged on because you had, a, you had this time that they were filling, but yeah, I, I it, it's interesting how they've slowed down their movie making, but when they do come out with a movie, it's something like this. I don't know. Also, just just say for the record, I really didn't like the way the movie treated Native American characters. I thought it was really reductive, essentialist, and stereotyped. That definitely impacted my opinion of the yeah, movie. Yeah, the, the like Indian raids were like really confusing. Like especially in the one in uh, the guy who got rattled. I was like, I was thinking about the end of Burn After Reading. And I was like, come back when things make sense. Because like I was like, that whole <laughs> scene didn't make any sense. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I, I viewed that as just kind of they're, they're trying to make a kind of a classic Western feel. And uh, and if you're looking at it from from their point of view in the Wild West, that I mean, that's how they viewed the Native Americans. That's why that was the the prevailing uh, thought process there. I, I didn't I noticed it, but I didn't have as much of a problem with it because it was more of a stylistic choice. I mean, once upon a time, Stefan Fetchett was a really popular black performer, you know? I mean, and you, like, so what? If, if, if that's been the way that Hollywood has treated Native Americans for, for a century, you know? Marlon Brando had Sashi and Littlefeather talk about the 1972 Oscars. I mean, get real. Let's get with the times a little bit. You know, the, the, it's just, it, it's really reductive and I think kind of lazy on their part. I wish that they had been a little bit more thoughtful in their in their portrayal. So what you're saying is one of the parts needed to be like a quirky Coen Brothers version of Dances with Wolves. No, I'm just saying <laughs> el- eliminate it. I don't un- I don't understand why the, the need to include these really negative racist stereotype portrayals of the Comanche Indians. Even as a throwback, it's not funny. It's it, it, it's it's offensive. I, I I don't get it. It was unnecessary in both of the stories in which uh, the, the the Native American tribes appeared. 
so having a so have a segment from the perspective of the Native Americans, like letters from Iwo Jima style or something. Maybe or just how about just not include it? Like we don't need it. We don't need yet another negative stereotype portrayal. But. Well, but you can't you can't tell a story about the westward march without including Native Americans. Yeah, but these 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 are twenty minute short films. I mean, I don't think they're trying to to be you know how the West was won. They're not trying to tell a, 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 an expansive story. And I will say that you know the, the Native American characters appear in, in what I've said is my favorite of, of of the of the six episodes. But even in that one, it's just like they're kind of throwaway stock characters, and um, they use them in a similar way that was being you know that 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 wasn't that was considered normal in the nineteen thirties. So I don't know. It's just it's something that bothered me as as I was watching it. Like I said, I, I I hear what you're saying. I just didn't have as as much of a problem with it as you did. I I, I thought it was I I didn't like it as much because it was boring, not, not because not because of uh of that as much. All right, well uh, I I think we're all kind of kind of on a similar track here where it, it's good to see a Coen Brothers movie again. However, uh. And and parts of it were good. However, we we were hoping for when when hoping for a masterpiece, we got something a little less than that. So, uh, two and a half stars for me and Zach. Three stars from Todd. Um, it is on Netflix, so it's easily available for everyone to uh, to go out and see. Um, and it it is worth seeing for a couple of those a couple of those good uh, good segments in there. Okay. Well, moving on into our spotlight segment. Spotlight. Today we're going to continue talking about the Coen Brothers with the release of the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Uh, it gave us an opportunity to look back on uh, on their career of movie making, which is uh, quite a quite a lengthy career. And we're going to try and come up with the Mount Rushmore of Coen Brothers films. Uh, so we're going to each put one up as our uh, as our nominee to be on Mount Rushmore and then we're going to uh, pick one to be our fourth. However, I think have we already picked what the one that we all agree on is? Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. So so in our in our uh, power rankings we have a, a running gag that uh, that Fargo is automatically disqualified from any list simply because it'll always be at or near the top whenever it qualifies. So uh, we decided, since we're doing the Mount Rushmore of Coen Brothers, uh, we are going to automatically make that the uh, the fourth Coen Brothers film on Mount Rushmore. So Fargo is the joint submission on Mount Rushmore of Coen Brothers, because let's face it, it is, it is as close to a masterpiece probably as they've gotten, and, uh, and uh, definitely has stood the test of time as, uh, as one of their, their shining achievements in film. So, uh, Todd, I'm going to go to you first to uh, submit your uh, your pick for Mount Rushmore of the Coen Brothers. Okay, uh, so my favorite Coen Brothers movie, other than Fargo, is Miller's Crossing. It is uh, it's my number three of 1990, but somehow it's like number three gangster movie of 1990, which is kind of just a weird <laughs> little <laughs> thing. I, I love the cast. Gabriel Byrne plays Tom Reagan. He's a the right hand man of a mob boss played by Albert Finney, and uh, they want to kill uh, the their rival wants to kill this bookie played by John Turturro, but he won't let it happen because he because he's dating the mob boss's sister, 
And it's the perfect representation of, like, Coen Brothers' aura and style. It's a fantastic crime drama, and, uh, yeah, it also feels more modern than most Prohibition-era mafia sagas. It's got that quirky sense of humor, and the climactic scenes are, are brilliant. And it also introduces uh, introduce the Coens to the brilliance of John Turturro. They actually cast him a year later as the lead in their next movie, Barton Fink, which is their most underrated movie ever. But yeah, Miller's Crossing, one of my favorite movies, and definitely one of the Coen brothers' like apex. All right, good choice. I have not seen Miller's Crossing, but uh, oh, I know, I know. I, I'm I'm kind of uh, lacking on some of the early Coen brothers. I've only seen a couple of the pre Fargo films, uh, but I'm glad I'm glad that era is is going to be represented in our in our Mount Rushmore. Zach, what do you got? All right. Well, um, I actually it's sort of interesting you say that, Terry, because I don't love a lot of their early films. Um, I've actually I've, I've I've never really gotten into Raising Arizona. Um, I like Miller's Crossing. It's not one of my favorite of their films. Um, and I've tried to watch Blood Simple at least three or four times because I'm visually I think it's their most accomplished film or one of their most, and I just have never gotten totally into it. I think Fargo represents their apex, and some of the films after Fargo are also really close. And, the, and so my selection is from 2000. 13, Inside Lewin Davis, a film that we've talked about on this podcast a couple times. Um, this is one that I didn't even see in theaters for some reason. I'm not sure why, but uh, it's kind of, you know, you, this is what we mean when you say we take the Coen brothers for granted sometimes because they have a pretty consistent output. Um, but when I saw it on uh, on Blu-ray, I was just uh, blown away by how good it was. Um, the it, it stars uh, Oscar Isaac as Lewin Davis, who is a folk musician in New York City in the early 1960s, the era that is pre-Bob Dylan, pre-electric guitar, um, where folk is still kind of king and rock and roll is, you know, passe. Um, and it's a, a week in his life as he sort of struggles. Um, his uh, singing partner has recently committed suicide, and it was like the one album that they made together was the, the, the one semi-hit that he had. And he navigates this kind of complex web of relationships, uh, like with Justin Timberlake and Carrie Mulligan, who played a play a married couple in the movie who are also folk singers, and he sort of resents their, their success. He sort of sees them as sellouts. He also uh, has a relationship with his sister, and um, these other kind of characters that come along in the movie there's a nice really random passage in the middle of the movie where he goes on this road trip with john goodman and garrett uh, headland as he goes to chicago to try to uh, get a record deal um it's a it's sort of a grisly grim film um it's very consistent with the coen brothers uh, sort of nihilistic worldview um it has a lot of quirky humor that i'm sure is attributed more attributable to ethan than joel um but uh it's uh the music is outstanding t-bone burnett wrote all of it oscar isaac is an amazing musician uh one of the best performances of the two of the 2010s it's one of the best films of the 2010s um it's it's a remarkable remarkable film so uh my my nominee is inside lewin davis that is uh definitely one that uh that deserves to be on there and uh and i'm not surprised that that's the one you picked um, going into, like you said, us kind of taking them for granted, I was looking at their filmography. They made seven films in the first decade of the 2000s, including um, one in 07, one in 08, one in 09, and then they started with one in 2010, but Ballad of Buster Scruggs is only their fourth film of the 2010s. So, uh, so yeah, we definitely took them for granted, 
and, uh, they've, and now they've written some films though I mean that's the other thing is they've that's uh, true you know had a lot of screenplays last few years that they haven't directed right and and they're and they're also producing the um, the Fargo uh, television show too so uh, so that's part of what they've been doing as well um, so I'm I'm conflicted on what to make uh, my choice for uh, for Mount Rushmore as I feel like there are certain things that need to be uh, included in their in their Mount Rushmore because they have so many different types of film that they make like they make their their more serious dark comedies like a Fargo or uh, or uh, others like that you have um, definitely in the last 10 years you have or even going back to 2000 you have a a proclivity toward uh, westerns with Oh Brother Where Art Thou and No Country for Old Men and True Grit and now Ballad of Buster Scruggs um, you also have their quirky comedies that are just kind of goofy um, with uh, with films like Hail Caesar and A Serious Man and Burn After Reading um, so I want to put a western in there I want to put a comedy in there I'm going to have to go with, uh, with the comedy and my pick um, as some of you may have already figured out is The Big Lebowski from 1998 their follow up to Fargo and it was really uh, their big, um, their big start in this kind of quirky, com- like nobody makes a comedy quite like the Coens do, uh, and they get some very interesting performances out of their uh, out of their actors when they do it. Um, and this is possibly their their most uh, iconic of of all of those, uh, where you have Jeff Bridges playing the dude. Uh, I think some people just think he is the dude now. I, I don't think they, they realize that that's not a character, uh, or that is a character. And uh, John Goodman and Steve Buscemi, uh, even into uh, John Turturro playing Jesus, and, uh, and Peter Stormare as the nihilist. I, it, it's, it's such a quirky film, and um, it's so funny in its awkwardness and just how random it is. Uh, so I'm gonna go with Big Lebowski as my uh, as my submission, with a close second being No Country for Old Men. Yeah, I mean I think that's the sort of uh, silver lining here, which is that uh, we have not mentioned No Country for Old Men, the film for which they won their long overdue uh, Oscars for. Um, but I think we're all agreed that's a great film. But maybe I don't know, just because it got all the recognition and, and success, maybe. Uh, these other films need to be recognized equally? I don't know. Well, well and everyone compares... I mean, they, they say No Country for Old Men. Oh, it's the closest thing that they did since Fargo. And I think it, that was the one that was awarded because they realized, yeah, we probably should have awarded Fargo. And this is the best thing and the closest thing they made since Fargo, so we're going to give it to that. So I think we have No Country for Old Men on there by awarding Fargo. That's what I'm going to say. That's That's deep. Yeah, yeah. So, so we we've got a top four. Todd, what do you think of our top four? Well, I mean, as we know from our recasting of the Big Lebowski, I really don't like the movie, so I'm not really happy with that. That's definitely the Teddy Roosevelt of the of the of the mountain. <laughs> but I, I I love I love how we have like it's it's the Teddy movie. Yeah. But I don't know. the The other ones are hard to argue with. I. I would have chosen... I, I do like their early movies. I like Blood Simple a lot. I like Barton Fink a lot. And uh, 
but I don't know. I, I mean, inside Lewin Davis, it's hard to argue with. Obviously, Fargo, Miller's Crossing. I probably would have just gone with No Country for Old Men. I kind of thought that's what you were going with, but yeah. Well, and, and you could go with No Country for Old Men. I think True Grit fits right into that same mold, too, that you could easily go with that. Um, and, and if I wasn't going to go with The Big Lebowski, another one that could easily get in there, I love Burn After Reading. I think that movie is hilarious and so funny. And it shows just how much, um, how George Clooney, there's, there's like regular George Clooney, and then there's George Clooney when he's directed by the Coens. It's a very, very different uh, actor, and I think it, it really shines in, in Burn After Reading. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, Terry, because, you know, I, I feel comfortable saying Inside Lewin Davis as my submission to the Mount Rushmore. But if we're purely talking about the Coen, Bru- Coen Brother movies that were the most enjoyable experiences to watch and certainly were like the, the highest laugh uh, quota, uh, Burn After Reading would be hard to top. I absolutely love that film, too. Uh, I think it's uh, maybe their most underrated film. I'd go with Hudsucker Proxy. That, I feel like, is an overrated Coen Brothers film. I don't like that one at all. Oh, I, li- I like Hudsucker Proxy. I think that's, that's like, showing what, what they could become when they started making their comedies. Like, it's, it's the precursor for, for Big Lebowski and, and Burn After Reading and stuff like that. I, I don't know. I, I feel like with the exception, the major exception of Miller's Crossing, all of their pre-Fargo films, it, it feels like too much like they're winking at the audience. They feel like it's it's too much of a gimmick in all these films, and they're making these kind of self-referential odes to earlier films and earlier styles. And it never in, in, in doing that, they never really, I felt like they never took their own projects seriously, um, even though they're, they're well made. But like, I don't know, like Hot Sucker Proxy and Raising Arizona, they're just such nods to, the, to winking at the audience the whole time. I can't, I can't get past that self-referentiality. Does, uh, does anyone want to make an argument for, uh, for their other Best Picture nominee, A Serious Man? No. I do like that movie a lot too, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't put that. I would say that's like around like tenth in their list. That's a great trivia question. You know what? What's their other best picture nominee? I bet no one, <laughs> no one besides Todd would get that. Well, it did. It did introduce us all to Michael Stuhlbarg, who uh, definitely had a huge year last year, and uh, and has turned out to be a, a pretty good actor. But I, I think we're pretty solid on our on our four. So we've got uh, we've got Miller's Crossing, we've got Inside Lewin Davis. We've got the Big Lebowski and, of course, Fargo. See, I, I second Todd that I, I don't think the Big Lebowski belongs on there, but then we're going to get hate mail and people like Hard Knock are going to, you know, talk about how we're stupid and, <laughs> you know, give us crap online. Or if we would have included their segment in Parisia Tim, that would have been, been a step. Yeah, that would have been a step out. That would have been a step out. <laughs> or, or we could have just, you know, thrown in... Uh, Thrown in the the one from Buster Scruggs we like. Just ignore that the fact that it's a full movie and just pick one of the episodes to put in. That we could have done that. If it was a power Anyways. rankings, I'm sure one of us would have done that. Oh, we would have. Yes. We totally would have. Yes. And by we, I mean Zach. For sure. Uh, <laughs> all right. So let's move on from Mount Rushmore uh, and our spotlight segment, and we're moving into power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. I'm kind of nervous now. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. 
So our power rankings for this time were chosen by me because I won the game last week. Yes, thank you, thank you. It, it takes a lot for me to win the game. So I, I think I've won it at the least out of all of us. I should go back and check to see what, uh, what the count is on who's won uh, the most and keep a running score of that. But I have a feeling I might be last on that list. So... I, I, ne I like Todd has like a list of power rankings that are going through his head constantly because he knows he's always going to win. I didn't have the slightest <laughs> clue. So I, I had to work on it and I actually changed it mid midway through, uh, through our time. And I picked one looking at, uh, not only what was coming out this week, but looking at some of the big movies coming out, uh, soon, uh, this week you had the release of widows, the new movie by Steve McQueen who's the director of 12 Years a Slave. It's his first movie since his Best Picture winner. Also, a little later on this year, you have, uh, as Todd mentioned before, If Beale Street Could Talk, the first film from Barry Jenkins, since he won Best Picture for Moonlight. And so it got me thinking, what are the best Best Picture follow-up films from a director? So uh, these are films that were the first film they made after... Their best picture, uh, their best picture win after their film won best picture. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they won best director, but when their film won best picture, this was the first movie to come after that. Why was this not like a trivia thing? <laughs> yeah, it, it could have turned into a, a a decent trivia thing. It could have. Um, so let's go with uh, let's go with Zach first. Uh, Zach, give me uh, give me your number five best best picture follow up. All right. Well, first I want to uh, give a give a nice golf clap to uh, Terry because this was an awesome power rankings, nicely done. If we were making a power rankings of Terry's power rankings over the last twenty six episodes, <laughs> this would be my number one of Terry's power. Rankings. Number one of like three. I can. <laughs> yes. <laughs> This was really fun to think about because you had to look up a bunch of Best Picture winners and some of which were directed by people I couldn't even remember because they didn't win Best Director. And then even what's less remembered is the films that came afterwards, some of which took years to develop. Um, and it's a tough category too because usually the films that won Best Picture, they're, they're never going to get better then. But So that was the first thing that I sort of thought of was, you know, for this director, what if, if uh, the film that they won Best Picture for, if it was a kind of maybe a weaker film in their... Um, in their resume. So uh, the first person that I thought of for that uh, was from uh, just a couple years ago. So my number my number five pick is Alejandro G. Iñárritu, uh, who won Best Director two years in a row, won for a great film, uh, The Revenant, which is my number five pick. And uh, the previous year he won for Birdman, which as we discussed on the Adam Daly live, uh, live stream, uh, I was not a big fan of. Um, the Revenant uh, reaffirmed my opinion that Iñárritu is a great director and Birdman was just an, an, an unfortunate and highly publicized misstep. It's the only one of his films that I, I haven't liked, and yet it's the film that won him Best Picture, which is really unfortunate. I don't understand why people like Birdman that much. Um, but The Revenant, on the other hand, is a really, really strong film, really good return to uh, great uh, narrative storytelling and uh, stunning cinematography and um, uh, characterizations <coughs> and unique uh, methods of storytelling with Leonardo DiCaprio fighting a bear in the 1820s, getting mauled, and yet somehow uh, surviving it. And uh, it's Iñárritu uh, at doing some of his best work, and he's a great, great director. Um, 
you know, it's it's really the first film I thought of when Terry mentioned the idea of a follow-up to a Best Picture winning film that may have even been better. So, number five, The Revenant. All right. Uh, I'm going to go next. Uh, my number five is uh, also a more recent film. Uh, this film is from 2010, and it is the follow-up to Slumdog Millionaire, which won Best Picture. And it is Danny Boyle's 127 Hours, which I also think is a better film than the one he best, won Best Picture for. Uh, this is, uh, like like Zach's film, this is a, uh, a survival story, a true survival story, as James Franco plays Aaron Ralston, a man who is an adventure seeker who uh, finds himself trapped in Utah. In um, uh, He got his hand stuck while he was uh, rock climbing, and it's him trying to survive and trying to get out and uh, and live, and it is um, it is an amazing film as uh, James Franco gives his best performance by far uh, in any film that he's ever done. Um, it takes a special actor to be able to carry a film like he does in this, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, like I said, it was it was better than than Boyle's film that won that one best picture. Uh, you had uh, amazing music from uh, Air Rachman, who won uh, for all the music in Slumdog Millionaire, and uh, he was nominated for some of the music he had in, a, in 127 Hours as well. So uh, this is my number five. All right, both good picks. Uh, I went with not so much a recent movie. I went with, uh, well, in my list, I, I went with uh, movies that are either better than the best picture or like a, a, a still a great film but a definite shift in like style so it made it uh a little bit more uh, uh diverse of a list i guess so my number five i went with uh oliver stone's fall to platoon which was wall street which was the year after in 1987 uh it's got the iconic role by michael douglas as gordon gecko uh the shady stockbroker who operates on insider trading and takes charlie sheen's bud fox under his wing shows him the ins and outs of greed and shortcuts to getting filthy rich and the atmosphere is as well established as anything that oliver stone ever did and it's arguably his best screenplay that he ever wrote I guess like maybe talk radio or midnight express would be would qualify but i've always loved wall street probably more than most anybody else does it's my number four of 1987 and so i had to include that my number five all right zach number could've, four could have could have predicted that if we were predicting uh todd's list that that would have been one of my predictions agreed agreed <laughs> all right well uh, my number four film is uh goes back to uh, 1970, uh, following the heels of his best director win for Midnight Cowboy, a film which I'm sure back in the day was, uh, you know, a controversial sort of, uh, you know, stirring the pot type film that a lot of people liked, has not necessarily aged that well. Uh, but the British director John Schlesinger made uh, his next film in London, and that film was Sunday Bloody Sunday. Great film, underrated film, with uh, Glenda Jackson, Murray Head, and Peter Finch. And it is a film about a love triangle between um, two men and a woman. And uh, the, the man in the movie is played by Murray Head, and he's obviously bisexual. And so the movie is very much about um, 
the the spectrum of sexual orientation, which for an early seventies film is you, know, you got to think is very cutting edge. But the movie really doesn't treat it in a sensational way at all. It's actually a very kind of reserved and quote unquote civilized film in a way, and it kind of shows how this this guy, you know, the Murray Head character, he's he, he's living in London. He's quite a bit younger than both of his lovers, and it's not like he's cheating on them. Actually, they know about each other. Everyone's kind of aware of the of the love triangle, but um, he's leaving for America, and so it's kind of about how, not not even so much who he's going to choose to be with, but sort of about how both of the relationships take on different meanings uh, for him. And these are three of the best performances uh, of any movie in the 1970s. Um, Peter Finch and Glenda Jackson were actually Oscar winners in the 1970s for other films. Schlesinger was a, was a gay director, uh, one of the few public uh, outed uh, directors uh, who worked in Hollywood and, and in the UK during the time. And uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday is his finest film. Better than better than Midnight Cowboy, which also dealt with themes of heterosexuality and, and homosexuality. But uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday is outstanding. My number four pick. All right. Have you seen that, Todd? I have not seen that movie, actually. Okay. Really good one. I have not seen it either, Zach. In, in oh, case have you wondering. seen it, Terry? Oh, okay. I was wondering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you I, I could tell you, you just assumed that, which was a proper assumption. You never know. You, know, you have seen Elizabeth Town. That's impressive. <laughs> so I was going to come back to that. Uh, number four on on my list. So one of the things as I was looking through, this may be a controversial choice, but I, I skipped over documentaries. I was looking for actual like, like regular regular film so i didn't count documentaries as a follow-up um so my number four is what i'm gonna say is possibly the most underrated film of this decade uh and that is martin scorsese's follow-up to the departed that is 2010's shutter island uh starring leonardo dicaprio as a detective going to uh uh an island trying to figure out uh, a missing persons case uh, incredible movie, incredible story, incredible performance by uh, by DiCaprio, uh, based on a Dennis Lehane novel. So you know it's going to be a, a quite the psychological thriller. Um, it was absolutely incredible. I still love this movie to this day, and for whatever reason, it just didn't catch on as much as his other films. Uh, but I I love Shutter Island. And it deserves more recognition, so I put it on this list because technically it was his follow-up to The Departed. So that is my number four. Well, it is a great movie, but the reason why I didn't catch on is because it came out in February. Yeah, it, and that was kind of a late thing that it it, uh, it ended up with this February release, which just kind of killed all buzz around it. However, something that's interesting, I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore. I mean, there's a lot of really big films that come out in like February and March that are that become these blockbuster hits that are remembered throughout the year. But at that time, yeah, that was kind of a death sentence if you came out in February. And Terry, I know you're omitting documentaries, but Scorsese's documentary on the Rolling Stones, which technically pre- predated uh, Shutter Island, was a really good documentary too. Shine a light. Mm-hmm. It is. Okay, moving on to my number four. Uh, it was uh, Ilya Kazan's follow-up to On the Waterfront, which was 1955's East of Eden. Uh, it's got James Dean's first posthumous nomination, playing uh, K- 
Cal Trask, the World War Two or World War One man in California who struggles with the approval of his father and connecting to his estranged mother and competing with his brother. Uh, Dean is extraordinary in the movie. It's the most well-rounded character that he ever played, and uh, it's it's not as good as On the Waterfront, but it definitely is a shift in style and aesthetics, and it, it it's hard to forget about the movie. I've I've always really liked it. it I, I've seen it a few times, and it, it never really gets old. East of Eden, my number four of 1955, and my number four on this list. I don't even think I've seen four from 1955. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> All right, Zach, you're number three. All right, well, my number three pick is... um, I'd be a little surprised if it didn't make an appearance on either one of your lists. I I feel like omitting it just as being gimmicky and not fair. And that is the follow-up to the uh, winner of the 1974 Best Picture Oscar, The Godfather Part II, in itself obviously a great film. Uh, But Coppola's follow-up to that is Apocalypse Now from 1979. Um, And obviously, you know, iconic uh, war film um, based loosely on Joseph Conrad's novel Heart of Darkness, starring Martin Sheen as Captain Willard, who goes on this uh, mission on a patrol boat to find the elusive and almost mythical uh, Colonel Kurtz, played by a very overweight and a very overpaid Marlon Brando. And you know what? He hams up uh, the scenery, but, you know, he makes it worth it um for all the you know the the millions of dollars uh he was paid for in that role uh you know they don't make movies like apocalypse now anymore you know it was the end of the uh the era of the auteur and um there's a great documentary about the making of apocalypse now called uh burden of dreams which is um or excuse me not burden of dreams that's the one about uh uh the the herzog film um in uh, Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's odyssey, which is footage compiled by Coppola's wife about the tumultuous making of uh, Apocalypse Now, which in itself is as much of a feat as as the film itself. Anyway, Apocalypse Now, great film, iconic uh, Coppola in the 70s, hard, hard to argue with. That That is, that is a, a classic choice off of the list. Um, and it was one I definitely considered, but it did not make my list. Um, wow. Number three on my list is another uh, another more recent uh, film. I noticed that a lot of the films that I'd seen that were the follow-ups were from the last 20 years, um, and there were a couple scattered in uh, past that. But uh, I think all but, I'm going to say, all but four of the films that I'd seen that were follow-ups came out in the 90s or later. So... It really narrowed my focus on what I was going to be looking at. The number three on my list is the follow-up to the 2010 winner for Best Picture, The King's Speech, and that is Tom Hooper's Les Miserables, the uh, movie version of the uh, hit Broadway musical following uh, Jean Valjean, uh, portrayed by Hugh Jackman in by far his best performance ever. Um and uh and his uh his running from the law trying to create a new life for himself uh running from javert portrayed kind of awkwardly by russell crowe but it it works uh i i'm a huge fan of the musical and uh i was a huge fan of how tom hooper brought this musical to the screen i was kind of scared when i heard that this was coming to the screen 
but the way he was able to do it and the way he uh, he portrayed uh, this story, which is an absolutely incredible story, and uh, in, in this film, I thought was uh, was absolutely remarkable. So it is my number three on this list. Les Miserables. Oh, that's a Terry pick. Totally a Terry we pick. Pre- we should have predicted each other's lists. Yeah, it totally is. Oh, I didn't even mention Anne Hathaway, who won the Oscar uh, for, yeah, you know. uh, for that. Uh, yeah, she was. she's kind of big in it. But. Yeah, just, just a little bit. She's only in like the first half hour of the film, though. She won. It's like the Jennifer Hudson win. She won it for one song, and that was about it. Okay. Uh, that's Todd. like... I don't know. I think that's Tom Hooper's worst movie, and I don't really think it's Hugh Jackman's <laughs> best performance either. <laughs> what would you say is Hugh Jackman's best performance? Uh, Prisoners, maybe. The Fountain or Logan? Yeah, Logan. Yeah, Logan's pretty good too. I don't know. Anyway, uh, maybe the Front Runner, which is uh, getting released re- uh, just now. Maybe. Jason Reitman. Okay, uh, so my number three actually comes from that same year. Uh, is the follow-up that Catherine Bigelow had to her Oscar winner for The Hurt Locker, and that is Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, Jessica Chastain plays Maya, a CIA operative who has a decade-long pursuit of the whereabouts of Osama bin Laden. It's got a ridiculous cast and is as tightly edited and written as any movie of the decade and definitely of any two and a half hour movie we've seen in a long time uh it is it was uh just three years after the hurt locker and for and uh bigelow and mark bowl combo came back again and surpassed the hurt locker in basically every single imaginable way it's fascinating intense intelligent zero dark 30 definitely deserves to be on this list that's my number three and don't forget, that was the movie that introduced the world to the new and fit uh, Chris Pratt. It was. That's true. Yeah, I forgot about that. Didn't, didn't that come up on Adam Daly Live as a film that Ben hates? No, he hates... The Hurt Locker is the second worst movie of all time. But, but, but Zero Dark Thirty, he, he doesn't mind? Uh, not as, yeah, he, he doesn't hate it as much, I don't think. Okay, okay. <laughs> All right, Zach, number two. Okay, number two on my list is, uh, so if I, if I felt an obligation to put Apocalypse Now, even if it wasn't necessarily the choice my heart would make, um, my number two choice is what my, my heart would make, maybe over my head. And uh, that is the follow-up to the 1994 Best Picture winner, Forrest Gump. Robert Zemeckis' follow-up to that is Contact from 1997. Um, is Contact the greatest movie ever made? No, but it's a, like, all-time top 20 or maybe 25 movie for me. Uh, I saw it in theaters when I was 10 years old. Yes, uh, I was a weird kid even back then and uh, absolutely loved it. Based on the Carl Sagan novel and starring um, Jodie Foster in one of the best performances of any movie of the 1990s. I don't know how she wasn't nominated for an Oscar for for Contact. It's it's sickening Um, because I can't see anyone else playing that role. Uh, But it's a story about uh, a signal uh, from an extraterrestrial species that is... um, uh, sent to the earth and absorbed by scientists 
the lead of which is played by Jodie Foster. And it's kind of about the bureaucratic process on Earth about what to do. Um, it's not so much a sci-fi alien invasion movie, uh, so don't get that image in your head. It's a lot more thoughtful and sort of talkative about the kind of theoretical and hypothetical questions about what we would do as a civilization if we ever actually encountered evidence of an alien species. Um, and it's the, the themes in it are really timely, and it's a really ambitious, audacious film that looks at the uh, at how both uh, science and religion can actually merge and form a bond, which is uh, something that seems really unlikely and impossible, but the movie forges it in a really unique way. And so uh, Zemeckis has sometimes been hit or miss. He's sometimes made some really bad movies, but Contact is his best film. And Forrest Gump is, is obviously good too, but uh, Contact surpasses it all. I know Zach's going to hate to hear that I still haven't seen Contact. What? Yeah. Are you kidding? That was like Jeez. one of the first things that you said when, when we met and we found out that we both loved Apollo 13 is that I haven't seen Contact and it's still true. Yeah, so um, we share a mutual friend at the college we went to, uh, Joshua Traxel. Shout out to Joshua. I'm sure he's listening to this podcast. Obviously, and Joshua uh, <laughs> is listening to this podcast. <laughs> and Joshua, let's just say he did not share the same passion for films that, that we did. He, he's, he was a pastoral studies major and is a pastor today. And uh, I forced him to watch Contact. And immediately after seeing it, he said it was the best movie he had ever seen. So if, if Joshua loves it, I'm sure you would love it too. That, that is high praise. That is high praise. All right. <laughs> Number two on my list is uh, one of only two directors I could find that followed up a Best Picture win with another Best Picture win. And uh, this is as classic of a film as they come. It is the follow-up to 1957's The Bridge on the River Kwai. It is David Lean's 1962 film Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, following Peter O'Toole as T.E. Lawrence uh, through uh, through the desert, the it, visuals are incredible. Peter O'Toole's performance is amazing. Uh, everyone in it, uh, from uh, from Omar Sharif to Alec Guinness, give outstanding performances. Anthony Quinn, I love this movie. Uh, it's an amazing movie. It's an amazing movie just to simply take in and watch and i know i've heard several people uh several filmmakers say that uh seeing lawrence of arabia is what inspired them to become filmmakers because of how gorgeous of a film it is uh, i always thought that uh this was a great example of the academy getting something right lawrence of arabia definitely was the best picture however gregory peck definitely was the best actor for to kill a mockingbird over over uh peter o'toole but that doesn't take anything no, away from that. peter o'toole's amazing performance um so i'm putting uh lawrence of arabia number two all right it's a good choice that's a good choice and he followed that up with dr Zhivago. so i mean that was just an insane run for david lean in the 50s and 60s I actually like Dr. Zhivago more than Lawrence of Arabia. I almost made my list. Ooh, that's a hot take. Of course you do. <laughs> okay, well, my number two was a follow-up that was also a Best Picture nominee, and that was uh, the Best Picture extraordinaire William Wyler's follow-up to The Best Years of Our Lives, which was The Heiress from 1949. Uh, it's uh, It was in the era where there was a lot of these... Uh, uh, like 19th century novel adaptations that, that came out and this one 
had uh, Olivia de Havilland and Montgomery Clift as uh, as love interest. Montgomery Clift plays like this mysterious guy who they think might just be after her fortune because she's like a really shy, rich girl. And their chemistry is really palpable, and you really get immersed in this love story. It came just uh, three years after the best years of our lives, which is probably the worst best picture winner ever other than Gigi. And definitely the most dated, but this movie is like a devastating romantic drama. And uh, it was nominated for best picture, and it was one of the early Montgomery Cliff roles that made me uh, just like start to love him as an actor. He could do absolutely anything, and he it's a shame we didn't get to see more of his roles. But the heiress from 1949—that's my number two. All right. Well, what's the over/under on people in the world who have seen the heiress? <laughs> I don't know. Great question. <laughs> Maybe 13? <laughs> what, people that are alive? Yourself included? <laughs> yeah, people that are alive, yeah, people... or... <laughs> I'm sure it was a box office hit back in the day. It's a William so, Wyler. I'm sure. On, I'm sure. On, uh, <laughs> on IMDb, it currently has a little over 11,000 votes. That's not that bad. It's probably more votes than, you know, Five Steps to Cairo, or whatever he's, Todd said was better than Casablanca. Graves. Five Graves to Cairo. Five, Dude, yeah, gra- Todd, you've got to pick that movie if you win if you win <laughs> trivia today. You've got to pick that for him to watch. I guess, but he's never going to like it, because I said it was better than Casablanca, so he's just going to hate it immediately. <laughs> True, I mean, but you gotta, I, you got to make him watch it. I, you know, I'm sure The Heiress is a good movie, but, like... That means that you're, you know, now process of elimination. You are not, you are ignoring some major, major directors out there. So uh, I, I'll be curious to see what your number one pick is. Both of you, actually. Well, but yeah, you're not going to you, guess my number one. <laughs> but sure. remember, Todd did put that stipulation on his list that his pick, uh, the follow up, had to be better than what won Best Picture. That's, that's what a good he's going. Or, 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 or a, a really, really good movie that's a change in style. That's what I. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That, that's fair. That's like fair. the Big Lebowski and Fargo, but Fargo hey. didn't win Best Picture. There you go. Are you, are you giving us a preview of your number one, Terry? Well, oh, well, I guess Fargo, Fargo didn't, didn't win Best Picture. So. But according to your strange metaphor, it did. In <laughs> but in two thousand seven. Tech, technically, yeah, exactly. Te- and but technically, I probably couldn't pick Big Lebowski since it was a follow up to Fargo, and we can't pick Fargo. So. It disqual it's disqualified automatically. It's like doubly disqualified. I just hurt my brain. Doubly disqualified. My my new favorite term. But two All disqualifieds right. make it make a qualified. I, I agree. I agree. Zach, number one. <laughs> okay. So uh my number one uh, is a little bit of a gimmick, but you know what? Whatever. You know, we do these lists for fun. Um, so uh, the first Best Picture uh, winners, it was a tie. Well, not really a tie. They gave out two Best Picture awards in 1927. And the uh, Artistic Award winner in 1927 was Sunrise, directed by F.W. Murnau. And I think that that's, it's probably my all-time favorite silent film um, and certainly one of the top three or four Best Picture winners ever, even if it didn't technically win like Best Picture as, as we know it today. Uh, Murnau's follow-up to that movie is a movie called uh, Four Devils, which has been a movie that has been lost forever. So um, does that count as a movie as, as a follow-up? I don't know. It's kind of like that question of if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, maybe it doesn't exist. I'm just going to assume that it doesn't exist. So I'm going to say that Murnau's follow-up to Sunrise is from 1930, City Girl, which is my number th- three all-time silent film. I mean, if you have 
two of the top three silent films of all time that you directed within a three-year span. You're doing you're doing something well. And City Girl is Murnau's last film that he made in Hollywood before his untimely death. And it's a tale about uh, a, a young woman who is from the city, and she meets this young man who's from the country and it's basically uh it's it's their love story but it's about how he brings her back to his rural uh, agricultural family on the farm and uh it's about the the classic clashing between urban values and agricultural uh rural values and this girl is like really kind of heartbroken because the family doesn't like her and it leads to all this drama and tension and Renault was brilliant at these stories that were really really simplistic um and so simplistic that you didn't even need title cards to have dialogue, which he hated in his silent films. But uh, the themes are universal, and the performances are so good that you can kind of read into a little bit what you know what the characters must be feeling. It's kind of like the Kuleshov effect writ, writ large. Um, City Girl is is a magnificent silent film. Uh, it's it's very underrated, and uh, it's my number one best follow up uh, because technically the follow up that he actually made uh, doesn't exist because it's a lost film. I will allow that since I ignored documentaries. Um. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Have you oh, seen Sunrise, Terry, or or uh, City Girl? I have not seen either of those. No. Okay. See, I, I wanted to ask you. I didn't want to omit you anymore. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, thank you. I, I I I like how you're just assuming that Todd has seen them. Have you seen them, Todd? Uh, I have not seen City Girl. I've seen Sunrise. Definitely well, one of the five best silent movies ever. You're right. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, it's one of the movies that really made me fall in love with, with movies, so uh, you're missing out, Terry. Mm, I, I, I genuinely want to see it. Uh, I, I do love silent films. Uh, my number one is one of my favorite films of all time, and uh, it is the follow-up to the Best Picture winner in 1938, You Can't Take It With You, and that is Frank Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I mean, I've I've had it on my list before, and any time I have an opportunity to put it on my list, I'm going to. Um, what more can you say? Jimmy Stewart playing Jefferson Smith, um, a local boy who gets uh, picked to uh, go to the United States Senate, uh, a history fan that uh, realizes that his naivete toward uh, what happens in government is uh, is a little skewed. And it, it's an amazing film, not only about uh, the government process, but about uh, just kind of the American dream in general. Uh, Jimmy Stewart's amazing. Gene Arthur is amazing in it. Claude Rains. Uh, it, it's, I love this movie. Um, I watch it as often as I can. Um, it is one of my all-time favorites, and it is number one on this list. It's a good e- pick. Easily good number pick. one on this list can't say i'm totally shocked it's your number one (laughs) yeah i definitely saw that coming and i'm surprised it's not on any of your lists i mean come on mr smith goes to washington it's like an all-time great i think that's like the third time you've had that movie on one of your lists it's possible (laughs) (laughs) okay uh my number one was uh the follow-up that fred zinneman had to a man for all seasons uh, seven years later, he made The Day of the Jackal, which to me is the greatest pure action movie of all time. It's about uh, the plot to kill the French president, Charles de Gaulle, and the French Foreign Legion hires this assassin named the Jackal to uh, 
to do it for them because they kept failing in their attempts. And it's played by Edward Fox, and you like meticulously see his plans to uh, to plot the assassination. It's like you're watching the assassination of Richard Nixon or Tra- Travis Bickle or something like that. It's it's really really interesting, really intense, and the climactic scenes are as like well plotted and believably shot as any action movie I've ever seen. And mainly because it's so far of a departure from Man for All Seasons, probably the furthest anyone's ever gone after winning Best Picture, uh, is why it's pro- on my list. And plus, it's an it's an amazing movie and probably the best ever in its genre. The Day of the Jackal from 1973 is my number one. In case you were wondering, no, I have not seen that. I actually haven't seen it either. I, I bet Terry, Terry, have you seen the the horrible remake they made with Bruce Willis called The Jackal? Nope. Oh. Well, see, that just shows how good it is, because like they made a terrible Hollywood remake, so the original must have been really good, right? Yes. That's usually how it works. In case you're wondering, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington has popped up on one other list, and it was number one on the... Uh, on another list that I picked, which was uh, a state, the city, the city in the name city. of the of the film. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I think I had Wall Street on one of my lists, but I don't remember what it was. I don't either. All right, uh, Zach, honorable mentions. Uh, well, uh, okay. I also had uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington as an honorable mention. Um, David Lean Lawrence of Arabia. Anthony Minghella for The Talented Mr. Ripley. I actually put the Coen Brothers for Burn, All, Burn After Reading for selfish reasons. And uh, I did put Michael Cimino for Heaven's Gate because I don't really believe it's a great movie. I think it's very, very unfairly um, criticized. It's not a bad movie. And the documentary about the making of Heaven's Gate is one of the great documentaries ever made about uh, the Hollywood studio system and the death of the auteur. Um, so it's not as bad as people say. Just sit through it. It's not that bad. It's only like four hours long. It's not It's not that tough. All right. Uh, my honorable mention, I have uh, Burn After Reading, uh, the Iwo Jima saga from uh, Clint Eastwood after Million Dollar Baby, uh, King Kong from Peter Jackson, uh, Avatar from James Cameron, um, and Philadelphia from Jonathan Demme. Okay, I had uh, James L. Brooks' uh, follow-up to Terms of Endearment, which was Broadcast News. I had Clint Eastwood's Iwo Jima Saga. Uh, Vincent Minnelli's follow-up to American in Paris, which was The Bad and the Beautiful. Alfred Hitchcock's follow-up to Rebecca, which was it was hard to tell. Either foreign correspondent or suspicion. He made them both in the same like couple months span. And Thomas McCarthy's follow-up to Spotlight, which is the first two episodes of 13 Reasons Why. Because he hasn't actually made another movie yet. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> all right. Now so you're s- telling me, in all honesty, that you neither of you even had Francis Ford Coppola in your on-rule mentions? And and not only it, could it have been for Apocalypse Now, but it also could have been for The Godfather Part Two. No, it was I mean, the that, conversation. That's insane to me. The conversation came before Godfather oh, Part Two. Well, okay, so what? Still, that, that's, a, that's a great pick, that too. Was, I mean, that was a great in my movie. next run. And uh, Apocalypse Now is like the fifth best like vietnam movie i don't know i i should have mentioned apocalypse now that was in my honorable mention as well shame shameful i'm sorry i'm sorry to disappoint you, you zach that's okay i also thought about interiors that was another one that was high on my list yeah 
Well, you know what's kind of interesting is as I was looking through these, especially the older films, it really seemed like um, the directors that won tended to be older and they tended to have career declines after their best director wins, like uh, you know Billy Wilder, even David Lean to a certain extent, Robert Wise, um, George Cukor. They really didn't do much. George Roy Hill, they didn't do much after their Oscar wins because they were all pretty old at that point. And uh, it seems like in the last 20 and 30 years, we have like younger directors that are winning at early points in their career. And so they're still able to do innovative, uh, unpredictable stuff. But that was just an observation. Thank you well, for you shooting also have, digital, that's why. <laughs> you you okay. also have over the last like 10 years or so, uh, a lot of follow-ups that end up being Best Picture nominees. I mean, Avatar, Zero Dark Thirty, 127 Hours, Les Mis, uh, The Revenant, all were nominated for Best Picture as the follow-up to a Best Picture winner. So I thought that was kind of interesting too. Absolutely. And I am somewhat disappointed that none of us mentioned In the Valley of Ela, which is the follow-up to Paul Haggis's Oscar win for Crash. Todd, come on. Yeah, well, that was in the list of movies that I actually liked that were the follow-up, so that helps. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. All right. It's time for a game. Guessing Adam's list. Zach, give us your top five for Adam. All right. Number five, uh, Shutter Island, directed by Martin Scorsese. Number four, Zero Dark Thirty, directed by Catherine Bigelow. Number three, Road to Perdition, directed by Sam Mendes. Number two, Flags of Our Fathers, uh, or Letters from Iwo Jima, directed by Clint Eastwood. And number one, The Revenant, Alejandro G. Iñárritu. All right, my top five. Number five, The Ten Commandments, directed by Cecil B. DeMille. Oh, he does love that film, doesn't he? Yeah. Number four, Avatar, directed by James Cameron. Number three, King Kong, directed by Peter Jackson. Number two, The Passion of the Christ, directed by Mel Gibson. Number one, The Revenant, directed by Alejandro. Okay, I have number five, Avatar. Number four, Philadelphia. Number three, 127 Hours. Number two, The Revenant. And number one, The Ten Commandments. All right. Adam's list. Totally forgot that. Honorable such mentions. A, such a random film that he loves. <laughs> what did what did Ten Commandments follow up? I, I remember the show looking it up. That was it. And Ten Commandments was his last film too. I remember seeing that. All right, Adam's honorable mentions are Road to Perdition, directed by Sam Mendes, The Talented Mr. Ripley, directed by Anthony Minghella, and Avatar, directed by James Cameron. Number five. Letters from Iwo Jima slash Flags of Our Fathers, Clint Eastwood. Number four, Zero Dark Thirty, directed by Catherine Bigelow. Number three, The Revenant, directed by Alejandro G. Iñárritu. Number two, The Exorcist, directed by William Friedkin. Oh, that's a good one. And number one, Apocalypse Now, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. I got three. I got one. I got one. Winner. I knew I know Adam. I knew you so well. It's because you actually had like a two hour conversation with him. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> We're best buds. I, I think that, that like doubled your amount of contact like ever with with Adam. But this one you actually somewhat were coherent for, so yeah, and I actually had Francis Ford Coppola for Apocalypse Now and then I changed it at the last minute when you mentioned Shutter Island, Terry. Ah. So I would have had four out of five, right? There you go. There you go. 
The Exorcist, Exorcist is a good pick. I actually movie. haven't seen The Exorcist, so. What? Really? Yeah, I've never seen The Exorcist. <laughs> or Contact. Yeah, doing this, I realize there are a lot of big films I haven't seen. All right, so, Zach, you get to pick our uh, our power rankings for our next episode. Can't wait. All right, it is now time to move into trivia. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Void is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. On our last trivia game, it was between me and Todd... And somehow I was able to pull out the win on Zach's crazy game on uh, on birth dates and birth places of Oscar winners. <laughs> Came down to James Ivory. Came down to James Ivory. Oh, man, that was crazy. Uh, so, uh, Todd, tell us uh, what I made you watch and what you thought of it. Uh, you chose a movie from... Uh a director that I hate, and that's Paul Schrader, and it was called <laughs> Dying of the Light from 2014. It stars Nicolas Cage as Evan Lake, which is as Nicolas Cage of a name as I could ever think of. Uh, <laughs> he plays a CIA operative who's on a mission to take out a terrorist who once tortured him. So He's essentially a mix of Brody and Carrie from Homeland. He's Because he was like... <laughs> His life was completely changed because he was, like, tortured by this terrorist, but then he's also, like, ostracized by the agency and, like, tried to be pushed out because of, like, the mental deterioration he's had. Uh, it's not... Also, <laughs> the first time we saw Nicolas Cage trying to take out a terrorist in a movie, he had that movie Army of One, which was a, based on a true story, which I think he should have gotten nominated for, but I'm crazy. Uh, so, the movie is directed by Paul Schrader, and it's actually not that horrible. Um, there's a lot to like in the screenplay. Uh, even though it's, like, amateurishly directed, it, like, some of the scenes are misguided and boring, and other than Cage, I think the performances are kind of bad, like, Anton Yelchin just sort of there, like, he's always dressed in black and in the shadows, you almost think, like, he's part of, like, the terrorist plot or something, but he really just had a really bad character. Either that or a figment of Nicolas Cage's imagination. Well, that'd be, that's an interesting take. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't know. I think the violence is kind of overboard, and the ending is rushed. But I, out of the jumbled mess, I, I thought it actually was interesting. And Nick Cage has a lot of really cool freakout scenes. And uh, I don't know. It's got a lot of really cool Nick Cage lines too. I, I I gave it two and a half stars just because I actually was entertained by it, and I was surprised. It's actually one of Paul Schrader's better movies. <laughs> uh, Zach, did you catch this movie? Um, no, I did not. It was okay. not free for streaming. All right. Um, I think it's I think it's free on Stars. If you have Stars, you can check this one out. Um, yeah, I was not as high on it as Todd was. Um, I thought the ending was just stupid. I mean, this this whole um, anticlimactic climax of he finally catches the terrorist. And then they sit across from each other, both equally, like, dying and having this conversation about, like, life in general, I thought was just ridiculous and stupid. And then later on, he comes back and gouges his eye out and then leaves. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I'm like, seriously, we're going to have the, the climactic scene be be the, the, the main protagonist and the main antagonist dying 
while looking at each other. And and neither even did anything to each other. They're just both equally messed up from being a part of each other's lives. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, he's Brody and Carrie put into one. He really is. That's a great comparison. I love it. Uh, okay. So, uh, with uh, me winning the last trivia game, I get to pick what we're going to do for trivia. And Todd and Zach are going to face off in some box office trivia. And since we were talking about, uh, about Best Picture, uh, our first category has to do with that. So, uh, you guys are going to go for the highest grossing Best Pictures of all time, adjusted for inflation. Adjusted for inflation, we're looking at the top 15 Best Picture winners adjusted for inflation. And what we'll do is we'll go back and forth, and um, once uh, someone misses one, we will uh, the other person will get a point, and they will also get any extra points for any more that they can get after that. So basically what we're looking at here are the most popular best pictures of all time. That, that's really what it comes down to. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Since, Zach, you ran the last game. You get a pick. Do you want to go first or second? Um, I'll go second. Zach is going to go second. So, Todd, go for it. Uh, Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind is number one. Titanic. Titanic is number three. Sound of Music. Sound of Music is number two. Uh, Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Return of the King is number nine. Uh, Rocky. Rocky is number f- 14. Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump is number seven. Uh, the King's Speech. The King's Speech is incorrect. Zach gets a point. Zach, do you have any more? Uh, Gladiator? Gladiator is incorrect. Here are the ones that you missed. Number four was Ben-Hur. Number five, The Sting. Number six, The Godfather. Number eight, Around the World in 80 Days. Number 10, The Greatest Show on Earth. Number 11, My Fair Lady. Number 12, West Side Story. Number 13, Lawrence of Arabia. And number 15, just for Todd, is the best years of our lives. Wow, that adjusted really did mess everything up. It really did. (laughs) (laughs) I had My Fair Lady written down, too. I should have said that. Yeah, I had The Godfather written down, too. I remember when I saw this list, some of them before adjustment were like, it made like $2 million at the box office, but adjusted, it's on this list. Okay, so uh, for uh, I have three lists here. For the second list, we are going to go to the other end and look at the lowest box office performances for Best Picture winners, adjusted for inflation. So the worst performances for a, bo- uh, for a Best Picture winner at the box office. 
that that's 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 tricky terry it is it is that's uh <laughs> so like adjusted would that mean like you know two dollars would mean like a lot back in the day right right so so a film that that made very very little would make a little bit more than the little so so basically the least popular at the box office films uh that won best picture well i I can't wait to do this i think we're gonna both fail miserably at this list but okay (laughs) because we have no clue whether they're you know i will i will give i will give you this uh the adjusted for inflation doesn't play near as much of a role as it did in the last one interesting okay okay uh zach you go first on this one the hurt locker the hurt locker is number one the artist the artist is number 10 moonlight moonlight is number two 12 years a slave 12 years a slave is number 12 ironically um chariots of fire chariots of fire is incorrect todd gets a point todd do you have any more um uh hamlet hamlet is number three wow yeah it's impressive um midnight cowboy midnight cowboy is incorrect Here's what you missed. I'll go from the bottom this time. Number 15 is Crash. Number 14 is The Shape of Water. Number 13 is Gigi. Number 11, The Great Ziegfeld. Number 9, Spotlight. Number 8, It Happened One Night. Number 7, Birdman. Number 6, An American in Paris. Number 5, Marty. And number 4, All the King's Men. I was going to say The Life of Emile Zola. That, there's no way that that made any money. <laughs> well, it's, it's not, not exactly box office gold. It's not in the top 15. <laughs> all right. For the last category, for all the marbles, Todd has a lead of 2-1 to one right now. It's a real barn burner. Uh, with the success at the box office of Bohemian Rhapsody... Our last category is the top 15 music biopics at the box office of all time. This one is not including inflation. Top 15 music biopics at the box office of all time. I will tell you right now. Actually, it's top 16 because Bohemian Rhapsody is number three all time right now. So not including Bohemian Rhapsody the top 15 so total top 16 question for clarification yes does walk hard count it are it is a true music biopics based on a true story but so Cox was real no he talked to elvis right (laughs) but 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 what if you're famous (laughs) (laughs) this is going to be interesting to see how well you do on this one all right, Todd, you go first. Walk the line. Walk the line is number two. 
the doors. The doors is number fifteen. Ray. Ray is number five. Uh, I, I wrote some ones down. I, I don't want to say them. I, this this is really throwing me off here. Um, my goodness, yikes. No, oh, I don't want to say that. Um, screw it. Selena? Selena is number 14. All right! Pulled that out of my ass. <laughs> Man. Um, Still alive. Yeah, I mean, I... It's, there's no way that's right, though. Uh, I don't know. The Runaways? The Runaways is incorrect. Zach ties it up. Zach, you need to get one more to win. Um. Not adjusted. Not adjusted. Fine, go with it. What's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with it is number 11. Yeah! That's right. Do you have Pull any that more? that out my ass, too. The Rose? The Rose is not on there, no. Oh, too bad. How does he Todd, get more did you points have... if he got the same number as I did? Or how does he get a point for that? I don't get that. Yeah, that's what we go with. <laughs> Todd, Todd, did you have any more? No. Any other ideas? Okay. So here's what you missed. Number 16. La Bamba was on the list, yeah. Ah, sweet. Okay. Number 16 was The Soloist with uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Jamie Foxx. Wow. Uh, yeah, number ridiculous. 13 was Shine. Number 12, Notorious. Mm. Number mm. 10, All Eyes on Me, mm. uh, Tupac. Number 9, Todd, you're going to kill yourself, Jersey Boys. Oh. oh. Really? I didn't think that made any money. <laughs> number 8, Amadeus. <laughs> number 7, La Bamba. Number 6, Coal Miner's Daughter. Oh, yeah, I should have gotten that. Number four, I can only imagine. And number one, what is what is I can only imagine? What is that? It's a it's a biopic of Mercy Me. It's a Christian music group, and it, it came out. I think it was this year or last year. Number one, number one is straight out of Compton. Yeah, that would have been a good one. That that would have been a good one to pick. Would have been a good one. All right. Well, Zach, you get to pick a movie for Todd or me to watch. You get to pick something for uh, for one of us to watch. Or potentially some um, a movie for each of us, however you want to do it. Or just a movie for myself. Or just, well, that's just like a normal Tuesday for you, so. That's true, but we've <laughs> talked about, you know, being indulgent on this podcast. <laughs> just talk about a movie I like. Uh... All right. Well, it is time to wrap things up with our quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack, you bastard. Quote of the day. I will start out with my quote of the day. Uh, my quote is from the film we all agreed on needs to be on the Mount Rushmore of Coen Brothers, and that is Fargo. I thought it would be uh, good to uh, to go with a Fargo quote. 
And of all the quotes to go with, uh, the one I decided to go with is possibly my favorite joke uh, from from Fargo, and it is Marge talking to Lou. She says, "Say, Lou, did you hear the one about the guy who couldn't afford personalized plates? So he went and changed his name to J3L2404." Yeah, that's a good one. So, nice. uh, so there's my quote. That was a good impression. Yeah, yeah. There's my quote. Todd, what's your quote of the day? Uh, mine comes from Miller's Crossing. Uh, it's from Johnny Casper, the played by John Polito, and it, of course, it's got to be uh, gambling about something gambling. So it's got it says he says, "Is getting so a businessman can't expect no return from a fixed fight." Now, if you can't trust a fix, what can you trust? For a good return, you got to go betting on chance, and then you're back with anarchy, right back in the jungle. All right, all right. Zach, to the victor go the spoils. You get the last word. Glad I get the last word. So mine comes from the 2007 Academy Awards ceremony uh, when uh, Joel and Ethan won their long-deserved, long-overdue Oscar. And this is uh, Joel's acceptance speech. It, it was painful because they went up on stage like four times, and it was just so awkward. But uh, he did give a good speech, though, during one of the awards. He said, In the late 60s, when Ethan was 11 or 12, he got a suit and a briefcase, and we went to Minneapolis International Airport with a Super 8 camera and made a movie about shuttle diplomacy called Henry Kissinger, Man on the Go. And honestly, what we do now doesn't feel that much different from what we were doing then. We are really thrilled to receive this Oscar, and we're very thankful to all of you out there for letting us continue to play in our corner of the sandbox. And I feel like that quote really applies to this podcast as well. Thank you, all you listeners out there, all, all 12 of you, for letting us play in our corner of the sandbox. <laughs> we appreciate it. Like Joel and Ethan did. Even if no one else can see the sandbox, thank you for letting us play in it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again so much for listening. Uh, thank you for putting up with us. Uh, again, please uh, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. Uh, give us that five-star rating so we can be, uh, be found by more people. And uh, we will catch you next time. Until then, have fun watching movies. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.